Hi, I'm Greg Schaefer, and welcome to the virtual CISO Moment Wrap-Up for Friday, December 16th, 2022. Started out this week with a hack of InfraGuard. This, according to Krebs on security. InfraGuard, of course, is a program that's run by the FBI to build cyber and physical threat information sharing partnerships with the private sector. Well, this past week, the contact information on more than 80,000 members went up for sale on an English language cyber, cyber crime forum. Now, apparently, according to the article, the way that this occurred is that the criminal applied for a new account using the name, social security number, date of birth, and other personal details of a chief executive officer at a company that was highly likely to be granted InfraGuard membership. The CEO in question said that they never received any sort of notification. The criminal submitted the application. They were approved in a very short period of time. And the accounts have two-factor set up, but you can choose to have two-factor by email. Few problems here. First of all, if you're not familiar with InfraGuard, if you're not a member, it's the way that uh, Brian Krebs describes it. It is supposed to be a vetted who's who of key people in private sector roles involving both cyber and physical security at companies that manage most of the nation's critical infrastructure, including drinking water and power utilities, communications and financial services firms, transportation and manufacturing companies, healthcare providers, and nuclear energy firms. I know from experience, and I'm sure that those of you who are InfraGuard members can say the same thing, that the vetting process takes some time. In fact, even the criminal notes that they expected it would take three months, but apparently it only took about a week or two. That's problem number one. Problem number two here is the two-factor authentication. It's if they already have control of the email account while you're setting this up, then that's really not true two-factor in a way. They, they've, they've already, it is to an extent, but uh, that's a hole that InfraGuard needs to needs to definitely close. Not doing two-factor via email, but the most obvious concern here is it isn't the fact that eighty thousand members' information was up for sale on a database uh, somewhere. That's concerning, of course. But InfraGuard is all about trust relationships, trust partnerships, and if someone can leverage getting into InfraGuard that is vetted by the FBI, supposedly you would think that that would be the highest vetting, then be aware if you're a part of InfraGuard that even there, trust but verify. From the Hacker News, Google on Tuesday announced that the open source vulnerability OSV scanner, that they have made this available now that the scanner aims to offer easy access to vulnerability information about various projects. This is powered by the open source vulnerability OSV database, is designed, quote, to connect a project's list of dependencies with the vulnerabilities that affect them, Google software engineer Rex Pan said in a post shared with the Hacker News. This scanner uh, generates the reliable, high-quality vulnerability information that closes the gap between a developer's list of packages and the information and vulnerability databases. This is interesting, and I want to see how this is actually going to work in a real-time, real-world scenario. The idea being that a lot of organizations use open source software, they build packages using open source elements and libraries and so forth. And if one of those packages is dinged, then the entire software is dinged. And traditionally, it's been very difficult to share vulnerability information and understand what 
elements of a package may be vulnerable, what open source elements. This is apparently looking to close that gap somewhat. And I know that there's always the concern about using open source software, very valid. They're, um, usually open source software, first of all, is vetted. You, you have folks that can actually see the code, hence open source. And that just from a quote, crowdsourcing type mentality would seem to indicate that there would be more emphasis placed on, on security of the packages. But if a vulnerability is discovered, how do you know that your package is affected or not? That's always been a little bit of a problem. So always when you're running open source, vulner, uh, open source software as well, just like anything else, um, have compensating controls in place just in case a vulnerability comes up that you're not aware of. CloudSec, which is a company that uses AI to predict when there could be vulnerabilities or attacks, released this past week that they discovered that security flaws in Atlassian products, including Jura, Confluence, Trello, and Bitbucket, that are affecting multiple companies. Apparently, this has to deal with the invalidation of cookies. They have released a tool that lets companies check to see if they were compromised. Uh, some other numbers here, their records show that over 1.2 million compromised computers and over 16,000 Jira cookies for sale on the dark web marketplaces and just in the last 30 days, almost 3,000 compromised computers and over 200 Jira credentials were made available. I went out to Atlassian's site. I didn't see anything from them that indicated that they had this as a vulnerability, although according to the article, the cloud SEC has informed Atlassian regarding the story and they have acknowledged and are working to resolve the issue. Uh, is this a flaw? Is this not a flaw? I don't know, but if you are a user of Atlassian products, you may want to be aware of this and check your environment. Traditionally, the method for dealing with flaws on a particular system or installing patches and firmware upgrades and those sorts of things was to, first of all, understand what software you have in your environment, what hardware you have in environment, and then subscribe to advisories. And then you would get those advisories via usually email, and you would review the advisories and make the determination as to whether or not that was applicable to your environment based on risk and based on uh, use of the particular software. And then you make that decision and then you apply the patch a lot of times in a test environment and evaluate that the patch is valid and then go to production. And a lot of that has a lot of manual processes in place, which can take a lot of resources, obviously. Well, according to Dark Reading, they're mentioning that the Common Security Advisory Framework 2.0 supports the automation of vulnerability management by standardizing the creation and distribution of structured machine readable security advisories. This is part of the an official standard of the OASIS Open um, this technical committee that developed CSAF includes numerous public and private sector technology leaders, users, and influencers. This automated system can, quote, filter vulnerabilities based on the products of interest and prioritize based on business value and exposure. This dramatically speeds up the evaluation process and enables admins to focus on managing risk and fixing vulnerabilities. This is another one of those items, just like one of the ones before, is that I, I, I like the concept here. I'd like to see how this would actually work in a real-world environment. So I'm going to be watching this pretty closely. I hope you will, too. And now submitted for both small and mid-sized business and also for security pros consumption from CSO. How acceptable is your acceptable use policy? The 
feature, the, the focus of the article is pointing out that over the last few years, there have been changes in how we work. A lot of working from home using uh, bring your own device. The security perimeter, of course, over the last couple of decades has expanded beyond the traditional firewall moat type rule that folks like me grew up with to um, a much more complicated environment. And, and the article is noting that maybe the acceptable use policy hasn't followed along with that. And for those of you who are not familiar with what an acceptable use policy is or an AUP, really what it distills down to is what you're supposed to be able to do, what you're allowed to do with company technology and resources. Um, something very simple would be uh, you you can not um, you do personal email, for example, on on the network, and and a lot of the AUP uh, would be enforced with technical control. Sometimes that's not possible, but you definitely want to have policy in place to help regulate behavior. And a typical security program would mandate that on an annual basis, not only is the policy reviewed by whomever the owner is in the organization, that could a lot of times be the CISO or the CIO, or sometimes in smaller organizations, it collapses down to maybe the CFO along those lines, uh, and then approved. And usually that would be a board level approval. And then after that, every staff member, employee, contractor, uh, even volunteers would be required to review and to sign an acknowledgement that they will agree to the AUP. Well, if you're agreeing to an AUP, which is outdated and not reflective of the post-COVID world environment, then you've got a gap there. So my suggestion to all of you, and we're going to do the same thing as well, is to continue to focus on reviewing the AUP, not just a sort of a check the box, nothing has changed type deal, but because things have changed, you need to pay more attention when you're reviewing your acceptable use policy going forward. On the finance side, the rising cybersecurity risks that will play, plague banking in 2023, this from the financial brand. Hackers, social engineering, fraudsters, human error, and customers who are just plain careless with credentials are all security threats that the banks and credit unions must take into account. This article talks about that security breaches have become one of the biggest threats to financial institutions. For example, recent years have seen a six-fold increase in malicious emails designed to trick people into giving away logging credentials. This is social engineering. But unfortunately, bank and credit union executives sometimes don't understand just how severe the problem is. And one of the things that the article notes that I agree with is that the more complex the environment is, the more human error we'll see. And then also automation it can be a risk and it can be a benefit. A lot of the problems that we have sometimes, it's not limited to banks and credit unions, but certainly we see that uh, a lot, is that there's, there's information overload as far as alerts go and maybe not enough resources to be able to fully digest those uh, alerts. Um, probably the biggest takeaway from this article, which I fully support, I'm going to quote the entire paragraph here, how can financial institutions do more to prevent cybercrime? First, they need to be aware that this is a long-haul process and must plan for it. Improving cybersecurity is a journey, not a sprint. An in-depth, multi-layer strategic plan is called for, not a short-term, quarter-to-quarter focus that leads to only reactive, merely, merely tactical solutions. Or in other words, the way I would refer to that is whack-a-mole. Uh, there's some good detail in here for advice for banks and credit unions. If that describes your organization, I encourage taking a look at it. And then finally, as you know, 
if you've been listening to the podcast, one of my favorite things to do at the end of the year is to take predictions and read through them. And this is always the time of the year where you have so many folks that are putting out predictions for cybersecurity for the next year. And some of the ones for 2023, as if you've been listening, have been sort of generic ones that it seems like we hear every year. Um, this particular one comes from VentureBeat, and these are four cybersecurity predictions for 2023. And remember, the rules here is that I haven't read this in advance, so I'm reading it for the first time. You'll get my reaction to it. Number one, chat GPT will reduce code vulnerabilities and improve productivity. So I, I, first of all, if you're not aware of chat GPT, you probably haven't been on social media recently. The GPT stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. This is from OpenAI. It's really quite a neat thing. They've got a free uh, beta version out there right now for testing. So everybody who's using it, that's part of their test environment, which is a, a great way to test, I, I, would, I would presume. Um, probably won't be free forever. It can generate some pretty spot-on content if you ask a question. Uh, like, for example, a colleague of mine asked, what are, qual- what are, what are um, characteristics of a a strong information security program, and it laid out pretty much some of the things that I would have said. And therein lies the potential issue with regards to this. Is chat GPT and similar things, similar AI items, will they force us or will they tempt us, I should say, to be more reliant on these tools and less on our own skills? And if we don't use our own skills, are they we going to lose them? Now, this particular um, application, though, I think is spot on, where if it can reduce code vulnerabilities, um, that's, that's awesome. Because you're, you're, you still have to have the skill set of being a coder and reading code and understanding what is output. So this is basically that it could give you a good starting point and maybe reduce some human coding error. Number two, network tools will open organizations to more risk. And Here, they're talking about that attackers increasingly will take advantage of network management and monitoring solutions deployed by defenders. Um, No argument there. Number three, the cybersecurity skills gap will widen. They note that the skills gap may be shifting from a quantity to a quality issue, that recent layoffs may result in more applications for InfoSec roles than in the past, and many of the qualifications here may not be applicable to InfoSec or may be overstated. Uh, I've got a couple of thoughts on that based on some recent experience, but I'll hold that off for a few moments. And number four, workforce security education will become key to reducing risk. Quote here, managing risk is no longer just a technological challenge. It is also a people challenge. Security leaders will start integrating human risk management into their overall security strategy. I would submit that if you haven't been doing this as a security leader for the past at least five or six years, you've kind of missed the boat on some of this. I I don't see this as a new prediction. I see this as an ongoing prediction. The third SANS prediction triggered a thought in my mind, and it's not directly related to the prediction, which is why I didn't mention it during that, but I did want to mention it in today's close. Um, When you're applying for a position, you really need to understand the position that you're applying for and all of its attributes. And 
you also need to be respectful in that whole process. Let me let me give you the exact example here. We're uh, currently in the process of evaluating evaluating candidates for a position in the firm that I work for, and had one candidate that apparently did not closely read the uh, job description, and they asked a question that was uh, the answer was plain on the job description, and I responded noting that pointing them back to the job description that know that this is actually what's in there. Now, the reason why I bring that up is that asking a question is fine. I think that that's perfect. But we were already in the process. We had already scheduled the interview. In fact, the interview was going to occur a couple hours later uh, from this email exchange. And when it came time for the interview, the candidate who said that they were ready to interview, the candidate never showed. So my assumption is that the candidate did not read the job description correctly, did not agree with what was in the job description and decide to withdraw from the process. And again, I have no problem with that. But what I do have a problem with is that they didn't notify me. That's rude. That's unprofessional. That's a waste of my time. Between the prep for the interview 10 minutes beforehand and waiting 10 minutes afterwards and then still keeping the application open, that's at least probably a half hour of my wasted time. And I will say this too, that that's something that's not forgotten. Um, Your reputation is one of your most valued assets in your career, no matter what your field is. And having that sort of blemish, now don't get me wrong, I'm not going to go out and talk about this. I would obviously never do that. But what my fear is, is that if this happened to me with this candidate, then this candidate may have done and or may do the same thing going forward with other positions. And eventually that sort of behavior will catch up to you professionally. So that's why I wanted to bring it up as a little bit of advice. It's okay to change your mind with regards to applying for a position, even if the interview is scheduled, it's fine. But don't ghost them because that leaves a bad taste in everyone's mouth because it's not professional. And like I said, eventually, if you continue with that, I think it'll catch up. That's just my advice from having been in my career for well over 30 years. And that's it for today. I hope you have a wonderful weekend and I'll catch you on Monday with the VCM Quick Strike. Until then, stay secure.